for Christmas, we're taking a break from our verse-by-verse study through 1 Peter, and we are looking at Christmas texts, and one this morning, Isaiah, in the Old Testament, chapter 9. You can turn there this morning. Put your finger there. I will eventually get there. Christmas is not a New Testament idea. It's an Old Testament idea that appears even in the Garden of Eden right after the fall, Genesis chapter 3. So turning there to Isaiah chapter 9. And now, Father God, we ask for your Holy Spirit who is here with us, who you sent to help us understand these truths which are spiritually discerned. That is, we can't make sense of the Bible without your Spirit helping us. So we pray, Father God, open our eyes, touch our ears, that they can really hear what the Spirit is saying, so that we could be blessed and walk in truth and have our hearts set free. In Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. And everybody said? That's what a guy needs, all right? That's what a guy needs after one service already. So everybody loves a good turnaround story. I love it when the underdog comes from nowhere. And out of nowhere, this beautiful victory that nobody saw coming, a reversal of fortunes and things turn around after you've taken a beating or whoever it is, and then suddenly that big turnaround big time. It's wonderful. Uh, That kind of thing is going on right now in the world of sports and football, to be exact. Now, whenever I use an illustration from football, I have to be very careful. I just read exactly what's here so that I don't make any mistakes because I don't know a lot about it, but I like this one aspect a lot. So I'm reading from the Wall Street Journal. Just when it looked like all hope was gone for a Bronco win, in the waning moments against the New York Jets, quarterback Tim Tebow manufactured a 95-yard game-winning drive punctuated by his own 20-yard touchdown dash. He brought the Broncos back from imminent defeat just as he has done in previous weeks against the Miami Dolphins, Oakland Raiders, and Kansas City Chiefs is the talk of the town. The turnaround usually comes with him in the last minute. It's usually unexpected, and it's always in an unorthodox manner, but it always brings great excitement. After the win over the Jets, and after the shouting was over, Mr. Tebow did what he always does. He pointed skyward and took a knee in prayer. In post-game interviews, the young quarterback starts by saying, first, I'd like to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and always ends with, God bless, to the dismay of many. (laughs) He stresses that football is just a game and that God doesn't care who wins or loses, but he does care how we play the game. No one can deny it's fun seeing the underdog become victorious and those who have taken a beating to have a great reversal. And so it's that kind of turnaround on a much more profound 
level, of course, that makes Christmas the joyful, exciting event that it is. Think about it. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining Thousands of years of groping around in the darkness. Uh, the world in error pining means the world was really messed up, but longing for the truth, to pine for the truth is to long and deeply desire that. And that's the condition of the world. But humanity and Israel here in the text taking a beating, and then out of nowhere... An obscure corner of the world, an insignificant birth from an insignificant town in an unexpected way, mankind has hope, a living hope, a supernatural hope from God above, forgiveness of all your sins, past, present, and future, peace with God, power over the devil, eternal life freely given. And in this crazy, miraculous turnaround, the powerless ones, the oppressed ones, become the victorious ones. Those who are down and out, without hope and without God in this world, become the spiritual winners in this battle for our souls. What Jesus will call many times he says, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first, the great reversal. This is a theme throughout the Bible from cover to cover. The, the David and the Goliath, the, the Israel, the Hebrew slaves, conquering their way out of a world power, Egypt with chariots and armed soldiers and slaves. This is what Christmas is all about. A baby <laughs> wrapped in swaddling clothes in a manger? That's going to crush the power of the evil one and bring eternal life and forgiveness of sins to the whole entire world? A king who will come through the clouds with great glory who starts life as a baby. This is God's way to bring a savior into the world and an unorthodox, can we call him a quarterback, who, uh, a team leader who will lead his team of believers who put their trust in him to victory. So let's take a look at our text. The first seven verses, very familiar for Christmas time. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress in the past, God, he, the Lord, humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people who rejoice at the harvest as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. 
Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. All verse 5 means is, is that the coming of this Messiah will end wars forever. That's what that means. That's what you do at the end. You just burn all the things that were used in battle. And so that verse confuses people. But he's saying, this one who's coming will put an end to wars. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And so this morning's text for our reflection in the midst of some very dark times for the messianic nation of Israel, Isaiah the prophet, 700 years before Bethlehem sees the Savior, gives a great reason for hope, a hope that's already been realized through Jesus' coming the first time, but not yet fully realized. This passage, I hope you're aware of, speaks of both comings. First, as a suffering servant to pay for our sins, to lay down his life in weakness, to be raised in power, and then second, to come to end all of the wars and to reign on a throne forever and ever to establish a new world order, his kingdom. And so we see three things. Let's just walk through the seven verses today. Uh, I see three ways we could kind of gather our thoughts as we walk through. Number one, if you're taking notes, a great reversal Two, a great victory. And three, a great God and Savior. All right, first of all, the great reversal. So Isaiah has some really good news. He does open with nevertheless, meaning we really need to understand what came in Isaiah 8. Uh, he's been talking about a lot of gloom and doom and despair. And, uh, but he's saying now, picking up in our Christmas text, that that is going to end one day, that there's an appointed end to darkness and, and despair. And the prophet kind of cracks the door open a little bit of the future and says, hey, things are going to change. God's light is going to come shining in, and he describes the place, the time, and the character of the Savior of the world, which brings this wonderful hope. But verses 1 and 2 really let you know that the good news, what we call the gospel, starts out with gloom and doom. Uh, you don't have a gospel, you don't have good news without the bad news first. The bad news is four adjectives in your text. One, distress. People living in distress. The Hebrew word is mutsak. It means to be in a vice grip to be squeezed, to have the life, the joy, just pressured out of you. The second word, gloom. These people are living in gloom. It's the Hebrew word muaf. 
And it really means thick, dark cloud covering that hovers over people's souls. It's gray, colorless, numbing existence, depression. You know, down in Southern California, there's a term, June gloom, for the fog bank that comes in and just sits there, mostly during early summer, late spring in June. And it's just gray and ugly and depressing. You know, we used to live in the Sunset District in San Francisco, across the street from the zoo, about three blocks from Ocean Beach. And it was so depressing <laughs> because of the fog. How many of you, you get affected by you need the sunshine or you're just depressed? Yes, I am among friends. <laughs> We would get in the car and drive until we saw blue skies. And I would drive and drive until the clouds parted. And usually by San Bruno, it's done right there. And it's just like a wall of gray. And this is what these people were living under, the third adjective in your text, people walking in darkness. And he's talking about a spiritual darkness there, groping around no truth, worshiping things that their hands had made, and trying to find the purpose and meaning of life, and not knowing their way, and what waits after the grave and all of this. It's a darkness described in Exodus chapter 10 with one of the plagues. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness, the same word, will spread over Egypt, a darkness that can be felt. This is how Isaiah is saying, this is what Israel's world was like in the announcement of Christmas coming to take away all of that. The last adjective is those living in the shadow, the land of the shadow of death. It's sort of like they're trapped behind this like gated community. And the name of this gated community isn't uh, Star Island or Brentwood Country Estates or Pebble Beach. This gated community's title, and how would you like to live here? The land of the shadow of death. Sound inviting? <laughs> Probably expensive, too, to live there, as everything else is. Kind of a microcosm, these four adjectives of what Israel's going through, of the state of the world spiritually. Darkness, distress, depression grayness, groping around in the dark. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed. You have an appointment. There's no getting out of it. Everybody who breathes oxygen has an appointment. You have an appointment for it is appointed unto you once to die, then to be judged. And this hangs over everyone. Where did this all come from? The origin, of course, started in the Garden of Eden. A giant sinkhole opens up when our parents, our legal representatives, Adam and Eve, they decide to disconnect, to become traitors with the source of life, the light of the world. And when you turn away from the source of life, what do you have left? But of course, the darkness came then. He said, 
the day you leave my fellowship, the day you turn from me, you will surely die and bring a curse of darkness, the four things, distress, gloom, and despair. And that's what they did. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death came to everyone because all sinned. And then that is what we labor under, the fear of death, knowing our indebtedness to God. You know, you can't say, I'm basically a good person. And it's okay, I'm religious, I go to church or whatever, because that's not enough, because you have sinned. If you, are, are, if you have ever sinned, you are guilty of breaking God's law, and punishment is coming your way, unless, of course, you've accepted the way that God has made peace with you through the death of Christ, who suffered in your place. And so the origin of all that gloom and doom is because they disconnected from the Lord. And they were miserable, really, for a reason. Isaiah 8 says, here's the gloom and darkness and distress. It's because you've forsaken God. So I'm quoting Isaiah 8 for you now. He's saying to them, before he brings the light, he's saying, you guys, you've abandoned the Lord. You're trying to do life your own way. You're, when you're in trouble, you go to psychics and mediums. You worship the things your hands have made. Uh, you're immoral. You've broken faith with the God who has done so many things for you. And he says, that is why. Isaiah 8, then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness, fearful gloom, because they have forsaken the Lord their God. That's 8. Then 9.1 says, nevertheless, in spite of all of that intentional unfaithfulness and sinning and rebellion, in spite of that, God says, I'm going to save you because it's all because of his mercy. In spite of man's insistence to do his own thing, God is going to step in. So what does he say? He says, here's what the gloom, the problem here for uh, Israel is because uh, Naphtali and, and Zebulun, think of them as their two tribes of the 12 tribes. The two tribes here are like two states. And those two states have Galilee in there, by the Sea of Galilee. And those two areas are the northern region that would get trampled on when Assyria would come in and take them away. And so they bore the brunt. This region of Galilee was known for the place where they would just get leveled. They were just trodden down. Gloom and darkness, why? Because in that region, that's where the enemy would come in from the north, and they call it Galilee of the Gentiles because on the border he had a lot of non-Jews. And so he's saying here in the text, in the past, God has allowed this region to really get trampled on. But in the future, he's going to use this place to honor and glory and bring the light of the world. Upon those living in the land of the shadow of death, a great light has dawned. And that is the understatement of the world. Because God, the Son, will step through a human womb and into this world. And he will say of himself in John chapter 8 and verse 12, I am the light of the world. 
Dawning where? In the place you would least suspect, in the backwood country, where everybody is used to darkness and despair and getting beat up. That's where God says, because you've been through so much, because you've taken the brunt of the beatings, I'm going to do something in you to bring honor and joy and uh, great hope. So the conquered ones would produce, really, the conquering one. And a light would dawn there. Uh, Matthew 4. Just listen, you don't have to turn there. But Matthew says, does this sound familiar? And I'll read it to you. Uh, Jesus went to live in Capernaum. That was his hometown, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali to fulfill what was said with the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea along the Jordan River, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So Matthew just tells you, look, Isaiah 9, it, 1 and 2, Jesus fulfilled that. Imagine if we were talking about a Messiah who, who did his uh, miracles around the Dead Sea instead of the Sea of Galilee, and that he lived mostly somewhere else, you know, on the, in the West Bank somewhere. You wouldn't have a Bible. You wouldn't have anything. There would be no Christian hope. Just one wrong move of 300 prophecies like that one. They're 700 years old, folks. There's nothing that you can do to alter them and say, well, what Isaiah really meant, we have them. We have the manuscripts. And so it says here that this light, Jesus' ministry, the light of the world, is going to manifest itself in Galilee. 700 years before Jesus even gets there. You see, because God uses prophecy to show the veracity of his scriptures, the truthfulness, the accuracy of the scriptures they can be trusted in. And so God's poetic justice is, look, you guys have been the underdogs. You guys are going to have great joy and great honor. Can you imagine those, those peasant fishermen, uneducated, saying, of all the lakes in the world, God could say, you know what, I need a lake, and I need some guys, and uh, we're going to have some fun out there, all right? We're going to walk on it, me and maybe Peter, you know. We're going to play around with the fish, you know. They're going to be an empty net, and then I'm going to say, hey, throw your net over there. And when you listen to me, watch what I could do. And God just tells all the fish, jump in the net. And the boats are nearly going under because of the fish there. Of all the lakes in the world, of all the villages, to the Son of God, God the Son, would manifest himself and walk arm in arm with man, God, in a body. What an honor. What a joy. I mean, that would be like saying, you know, God saying, you know, a great light has dawned over Lake Tahoe. And, and, and the whole world making pilgrimages to Northern California because he came to Northern California out of the whole world. And he walked on Lake Tahoe and he did all his ministry there and he raised the dead up there. 
and he opened the eyes of the blind. And he lived there and did all his miracles there, just about. That's what they were feeling. He's saying, look, people have overlooked you long enough. God is going to manifest himself. And you know, it's a nice picture of us, the honor. Who are we in the world that we should know God? Who are we that we should have eternal life and have the living God who chose you to know him? Jesus said, hey, you didn't come looking for me. Surprise, I came looking for you. I reeled you in. You may think you came, but you did have to say yes to him. But he is the initiator. And who are you that he should uh, be pleased to dwell where? In your heart and give you new life. It's a great turnaround indeed. And so moving on, he says, uh, heads up. It's going to be a great turnaround. Uh, those who have been humbled will be honored. And this in Galilee. So number two, a great victory it is. Um, he says, just like God did back with Midian, crushing that army and freeing us from their cruel oppression, so it will be in that day. And so this appearance that Jesus is going to make here in Galilee, of course, first at Bethlehem, isn't a temporary fix. It's the beginning of the end of the world as we know it. It's eternal, final, forever victory for the people of God. And so this great victory is great because nobody expected it. It comes in a place and from a person. Nobody expects that a baby born in Bethlehem to two peasant nobodies is going to be God the Son. And so what your text does here is very interesting. He says he likens Christmas and the victory that Christmas brings, the Savior into the world, to the days of Midian. And now we've been studying Judges, so it should kind of ring a bell. So what Isaiah wants you to connect Christmas to is Gideon and God's victory over Midian. All right, let me refresh your memories because it's exactly what happened at Christmas. Israel in trouble, under cruel oppressors, the Midianites outnumbered them. There's 135,000 of them. And it says in the text there in Judges that the camels fitted for war uh, whereas everywhere on the countryside. And they couldn't even live. The Midianites were cruel. They'd come in and they'd take all the harvest that the Israelites had worked so hard for. They'd come in and take it all away their fruits, their vegetables, their food, and then they'd slaughter their livestock. And the Israel, Israelites lived in utter fear. They lived in caves. They weren't free to go about. And so you've got your four Ds there, the dismal and depressing thing that's going on there, fear and anguish and misery. And the Lord told them, you guys quit whining because you guys asked for this and you wouldn't listen to me. And then they cried out to the Lord, and God raises up this guy named Gideon. When the Lord goes to Gideon, he says, hey, greetings, you mighty warrior. And Gideon says, are, are you kidding me? I'm, I'm not a good fighter. I'm a weak person. And the Lord says, exactly. You're the person I want to use because that's kind of my way. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. This is how I do things. You're perfect for the job. And so he says, I want you to save Israel from 135,000 troops. So 
Gideon calls up, we need some help, and 32,000 men appear. And the Lord says to Gideon, Gideon, uh, it's out, you're outnumbered here. So I need you to lose some of the 32,000 so that I could get the glory and show you that I don't need your might. I can do this thing through your weakness. And so he says, okay, anybody who wants to go home, who doesn't want to fight the Midianites, can go home. So out of the 32,000, uh, 22,000 say, yes, I do. We want to go home. So 22,000 of them, two-thirds of them go home. It leaves them with 10,000. So Gideon's all, is that cool now, Lord? I got 10,000 guys against 135,000. And the Lord says, no, you still got too many. So he says, the Lord says, I got a test, and here's how to divide them. Got a little river there. Tell them all to go take a drink, and then we'll divide them. The ones who cup their hands and drink kind of like a warrior would drink, kind of looking around and cupping their hands, uh, separate them from the ones who just look down and act like a dog and lap it with their tongue. <laughs> so they do it. 9,700 of them uh, do it the warrior way. And 300 of them, like wild dogs, just look down and start lapping. So Gideon looks up, and he says, uh, who's who? And the Lord says, you get the lappers. <laughs> the, three, the 300 of the guys who are just looking, lapping like dogs, uh, that's perfect, the Lord says. So he gets those 300. And now here's the part that we get into Christmas about. Then he says, here's what I want you to do. Take torches with like hurricane lamp style clay around those torches. A trumpet's gonna blow. You break the jars, the clay pots, and let the light shine. And pow, you will be delivered. The yoke will be broken, the fear gone, the enemy out of town. And so that's exactly what happens. Now, this great plan that saved the world then and now is the same thing with Gideon being kind of like Jesus, unassuming. God in a body, we often call it a clay pot, a clay vessel with treasure within. Now listen to what Jesus did. On Good Friday, at 3 o'clock, there was a trumpet sound. And our meek and mild nobody standing there condemned, Jesus who's supposed to save the world, is there. The trumpet sounds at 3 p.m. on Good Friday. And in the temple, hundreds of lambs are being slaughtered for Passover. The trumpet sounds. The lamb is slain. Jesus dies, the clay pot broken, the light of the world shining through in love and compassion and mercy, paying for the sins of the world in a way nobody would ever expect, in weakness and obscurity. The Bible says that nobody even recognized that it was human because of how he was beaten. He didn't even look like one of us anymore. 
But imagine that, the trumpet, the breaking of the pot, the clay, and then by that, the true yoke, not of the Midianites, but of the devil, and of our sins and guilt and shame. It's paid for. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him. And so it's just an amazing thing, the weakness that God shows up in a human body, in a baby, unassuming way to save the world. And so we've seen truly a great reversal, truly a great victory, and now truly a great God. So the unsuspecting conqueror who breaks the chains and ends all wars uh, enters the world humble as a human child. So in John 6, Jesus now grown, and in the middle of his ministry, there in Galilee, he says, I came down from heaven. And the Jews grumble and they say, how can you say that you came down from heaven? We know your mother. We know your father. We, we know your sisters and brothers. How can you say you've existed before and that you come down from heaven? And he said that he came down from heaven to save the world, to offer his life for our sins. So they're wondering, well, how did you get here? How does the Son of God get to earth? You said you came down. You know, is it like Psalm 18? He parts the heavens and came down, mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. Is that how you came down? No. The seed of the woman planted in a virgin's womb. God Almighty, by the Holy Spirit, incarnates himself, fills a virgin's womb. Fully God, fully man, and then unto us a child is born, one side of his nature, human, son of Mary, the seed of the woman, nothing to do with the man, and then unto us a son is given, his divine nature. Fully God, fully man, because our Redeemer needed to be fully man to identify with us, and fully God and fully perfect, to, to defeat the power of sin. No man who's a sinner can pay for another sinful man or woman. So he had to be the God-man, a child born, a son given. And uh, this is how he shows up. No gloom, no darkness now, no distress. The chains are broken, war cease, the curse is reversed, all because God has come, stepped into human history to rectify and reconcile the world to himself. And he's wrapped himself in light before. Now he's wrapped himself in swaddling clothes for you and for me. An amazing act of humility, the God of the universe being born a human being. We're a little uncomfortable with the humanity of Jesus. Right now, who reigns and rules this world is a glorified human being. He retains his humanness. He is fully God, and he is fully a human being, glorified. That is our Savior. He had to taste death for us. God cannot die, so he had to become 
flesh and blood like us, so in order, so he could die and taste death for you. He could not do that just by uh, sending an angel or by doing that himself. And then finally, it says, of the increase of this government, of this child who becomes a man, the son of God, the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end. He'll reign on a throne forever and ever, justice, righteousness, uh, from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So Jesus comes as really good news, saying that he will, he will set up a kingdom here. It's called the millennial kingdom. And when he comes in power and glory, he will establish his own kingdom. And it will reign, he will reign for 1,000 years on this earth, a renewed earth, a paradise of sorts. The lion lays down with the lamb, the, the curse is re, reversed, and it's uh, him reigning in truth and righteousness. So what is it going to be like when Jesus is on the throne? Because you will be there one way or the other. Uh, we live on. Everybody is eternal, and you're either going to eternally live or eternally die. Unfortunately, some folks who reject the gospel, well, what is his kingdom going to be like? Well, it's going to be a little bit like the king is, because the kingdom will reflect the heart of the king. So I picture, you know, what will it be like? Well, it'll be like having somebody washing your feet. They're dirty and you need to be comfortable and clean. A king like that. A king who cared about somebody's embarrassment. They ran out of wine at a wedding and they were, it was a nightmare of embarrassment. And the Lord said, oh, no, I'll, I'll cover your shame. I'll cover your embarrassment. And it was important. That'll be his first miracle. And his love and his caring and he enjoyed celebrations. He carried people's burdens. He rebuked evil. He showed compassion. He stilled storms. He made people feel safe and loved and special and important. And he wanted everyone to have fullness of joy. And that day is coming. As Yeats put it, that one far-off divine event toward which all creation moves. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There's no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no mourning, no crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, 
Their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Well, Merry Christmas. And uh, <laughs> Christmas is a battle cry. It is the Lord saying, I have come to put an end to the devil and to death. But not everybody wants that. People want to remain in their sins and do their own thing. And so on one hand, Christmas is a great hope. And on the other hand, for those who don't believe, who wish to just remove Christ from Christmas, who get irritated at the very sound of Christmas, whether it's a Christmas tree or whether it's a Merry Christmas, we can't stand listening to the word. Why? Because the king demands that you surrender. And if you don't want to surrender, you don't want to hear the word to remind you that a king is coming. And so we see a little bit of that. But for all those who received him, who believe in Jesus Christ, who are born again, you know, the main thing I want to leave you with is one thing that's important. Jesus said, no one will get to heaven unless they are born again. It doesn't matter what church you've been to or your actions or your deeds, good, bad, or ugly. Nothing matters except one thing from the voice of the Son of God. Are you born again? That means, did you repent of your sins, ask Christ to come into your heart, and by his Holy Spirit, he brought his spirit in and made you spiritually alive, which means you have a new life. You don't do the things you used to do. You don't sound like you used to sound. You don't think like you used to think. You're not perfect, but now you're alive and aware and in fellowship with God. And there are four descriptions of him. He's wonderful counselor. Is he? Do you talk to him every day? Do you live by his truth? Do you go to him in prayer and say, Lord, I've got a problem. I need a counselor. How should I handle this problem? He says he's the wonderful counselor. But if you're not born again, you never talk to him. It's a gift that remains unopened. Almighty God. Is there power of God in your life over sin? Is there new life? Is there God's hope and God's ability to uh, help you with besetting sins and to live for him? Everlasting Father, do you have a relationship with God as your father? You're not anxious for things. You're letting the Father heart of God care for you. You have a loving relationship as his daughter or, or son in a personal way. Prince of peace. Do you know that peace with him? Your sins are washed away and you walk with him with a clean conscience. Enjoying that peace in your heart no matter what situation's going on. That's who he is. That's the gift of Christmas. But it's for those who are born again. Not those who are religious, those who have entered in and know him in personal ways as a counselor, as God, as a father, as the prince of peace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for 
the wonderful message here in Isaiah, prophesying of great hope to come that has come in Christ. And now, Father, we set our hope on the second coming, where you will come to establish your reign and rule forever. We're so grateful to belong to you. We love you. We're so grateful for the gift that you've given us, light in our lives, where we had darkness and now life. We thank you in Jesus' wonderful name.